This is episode number 36 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the biweekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else or hardly anyone else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. We at the Individual One podcast have not been co-opted like the rest of the state-run, supposedly conservative media has been, and we will remain that way. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual one. That's individual, the number one pod. We've got so much to talk about over the, what has happened the last uh, several days since our last podcast, but we're going to begin with a, a really fantastic interview with uh, CNN contributor uh, Tara Satmeyer. And she's someone uh, with whom I go way back. We have not spoken in a very long time. <laughs> it was 12 years ago, I believe, when we last spoke, when I was a talk show host at KFI here in Los Angeles, and she was working for Dana Rohrbacher, who was at that time a very conservative Republican congressman in Orange County, who ended up becoming a, a total Trump sycophant and losing his seat largely because of his support for Donald Trump in the last uh, election in 2018, and also uh, became known as uh, to some people, Putin's puppet. And so I'm curious to hear her thoughts on that, as well as the entire Donald Trump phenomenon and what ought to happen in light of the Mueller report. Uh, so let's uh, bring her in now. Tara Setmeyer, welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. By my account, it's been about 12 years since the last time you and I spoke. And at that time, you were the communications director for Congressman Dana Rohrbacher here in Southern California, uh, who at the time I really liked. Uh, he was a you know, conservative uh, Republican congressman, and uh, and you were fighting the good fight for him. And since that time, boy, almost everything about the whole world has changed, <laughs> uh, in, including my view of him. And I'm curious uh, did, was, did your view of him change at all as he became a, a Donald Trump sycophant and uh, some say uh, a pseudo agent of Russia? What was your what, what, how did your view, if, if at all, change on, on uh, Congressman Rohrbacher? Well, let me say, uh, actually, I steal a phrase from Dana. He used to say it's the world turned upside down. The irony is that it now applies to him and his positions with um, on Russia and Donald Trump, which were very disappointing for me to, to witness. I absolutely adore Dana Warbacher. He is um, a, a really wonderful, at least Dana Warbacher I worked for, was a wonderful, kind, funny, smart, down-to-earth individual, which made working for him an absolute pleasure. I spent almost seven years with his office. We're very close-knit. He treated us all like we were... We were family. Um, he used to say to me, I don't consider you an employee. I consider you a partner in our fight for freedom. And watching the evolution of his support for Donald, uh, for, for Donald Trump was really difficult for me because I still have a friendship with Dana, and we would battle like hell during the election over his support for, for, for Trump. And it, Trump was not his first choice, and he knew that Donald Trump was a disaster. But his argument was, it's better than Hillary. And I think he, like a lot of other people who just 
didn't realize how just awesome what a madman Donald Trump really is. He underestimated Donald Trump and his um, malignant narcissism. And so he thought, well, we'll be able to control him. He'll become more presidential when he gets there. And God was out of miscalculation. So, you know, I, um, we, like I said, we, we had many disagreements over Donald Trump. Um, we had a very easygoing relationship so I could curse him out and tell him that he was out of his effing mind, <laughs> and that he was wrong, and how could you do this as a former Reagan speechwriter? And he would just say to me, but what's the alternative? Um, and then once Donald Trump got elected... He kind of, I think, was enamored with the access to power again, because many of you know that he was a Reagan speechwriter for almost Reagan's entire two terms. And um, I think that Dana liked the idea of finally having some relevance again. Um, And I think that that was to his detriment. Now, his position on Russia, I never fully agreed with. Even when I worked with him, I worked with Dana from 2006 to 2013. And I wasn't fully on board with his with his decision to want to be friendlier to Russia. But at the time, it was still tenable because uh, Putin hadn't invaded Crimea yet. Ukraine hadn't happened yet. A lot of those major violations had not happened yet. So they need to say, hey, listen, we need to try to be friendly with the Russians. The people are great. Let's not punish them for what the government's doing. We need them in the war on terror. So he would he kind of rationalized it that way. He's not an agent of Russia. It hurts me that people, he's now known as Putin's favorite congressman. Like, that was just awful. Um, But that was his his own doing, and he dug in against a lot of the advice of people close to him, and it resulted ultimately in him losing his seat in Congress after 30 years. So to be clear, and by the way, that's a really fascinating answer you just gave. So it is not your view uh, that that Congressman Rohrabacher, now former Congressman Rohrabacher, there was that there was anything um, untoward going on that somehow he was compromised by Russia. You, you don't buy into that theory, no. And, no, and this is why because um, you know, one thing I can say about Dana is that he certainly has integrity, and he doesn't do anything he doesn't believe. And maybe his belief might be a little different than everybody else's, but he does what he thinks is right. And sometimes his charity and desire to do things for other people, he likes to fight for the little guy. In a lot of his legislative battles, if you notice, he tries to take on the mantle of being the guy that'll fight for the voice of the voiceless or people who don't get heard. Dana likes to take up those fights. Take up those fights. And one example of that was when I worked for him, and um, there were two Border Patrol agents named Ramos and Colbion out of Texas who were unjustly prosecuted in prison for 11 and 12 years for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler and not properly reporting it. And he allowed me to basically be the Aaron Brockovich of that case, where he gave me carte blanche to use the powers and authority of his office to help muster um, support for them nationally, help with other members of Congress. And I really spent almost two and a half years, three years of my uh, tenure with him fighting on behalf of Ramos and Colbion and helping to build that coalition nationally. And we and it ultimately led to a presidential commutation on President Bush's last day in office that got them out of prison. They spent two years in solitary confinement while we fought for them, but they were commuted from the rest of their 11- and 12-year sentences, and they were able to go home and spend the rest of their lives with their families. And I'm very proud of that. It's one of my proudest moments um, and accomplishments in my adult 
career, and I have Dana to thank for that. And that's just an example of his okay. passion for okay, but taking that, up but, causes for the little guy. And, well, so and I remember, I remember you and I remember you and I disagreeing about that case. But okay, you know, right. far, well, you far, didn't know the case as well as I. Did, I, I, so. I acknowledge, <laughs> I acknowledge that, I acknowledge that, and, yeah. and I don't want to fight over that again. But, but, yeah, but, okay. but, 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 what I'm curious about is how does that relate to your belief? That that there is no uh, unknown explanation for why Dana Rohrabacher would all of a sudden be Putin's favorite congressman. What, I mean, how did, what, what's the connection there? I don't see how one thing necessarily proves or disproves the other. What, why are you so confident that there's nothing strange going on there? Well, because it's an example of him believing in something that other people thought like you and others who were like, ah, oh, these guys are guilty, and you know they're corrupt agents, and you didn't go that far, but some people tried to say that about them, which wasn't true. And if it hadn't been for Dana deciding to take a leap of faith and investigating their case and allowing me to do that, their case, they may have been rotting in jail for 11 and 12 years. So the example is that he's he has a heart for wanting to do what's right where he sees an injustice. Sure, I don't, I don't, I don't, deny, I don't deny that, but I'm just saying... I'm, I'm getting to the point. Where, okay. where that translates to Russia is that in his mind, he thinks that by supporting what's going on in Russia and establishing a relationship with their government, that he can be that guy that's going to be the one that changes the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. Now, I think he's misguided in that thinking, but that has always been his motivation. Dana's not a wealthy guy. He's not motivated by money and power. You know, he used to hate fundraising. He used to make fun of the country club Republicans. Like, he is a, you know, surfer guy from Orange County, California, that got into public service to do what he thought was right. So my experience with him, I've never seen him do things that would compromise his family, his uh, his job, his constituents. There was nothing of that. Okay. Now, sometimes he might have his desire to want to be a player might have taken him um, in wrong directions with trusting the wrong people. But I don't believe there was anything nefarious or compromising from what I saw for the seven years that I worked with him involving Russia. Fair enough. I can't speak for what happened after that. Sure, fair, fair enough. And la- one last thing on Rohrbacher. So you said that you think that part of what caused him to fall uh, for Donald Trump was the access to power, which happens an awful lot, as you know, in Washington. Uh, Do you believe that he ever thought that it might cost him his seat in Congress? And do you think he now regrets uh, getting so close to Donald Trump? Because clearly it did cost him his seat in Congress. Well, um, I actually have not talked to Dana since he lost. um, But I would imagine that he... I know that, for me, I warned him about his support for for not only Trump, but for Russia so blatantly. And uh, we were all concerned that the Rohrabacher alumni team is very close. A lot of us are still very good friends. And those of us who left, and we would have conversations amongst ourselves saying, this is going to be the death of Dana's career. And unfortunately, we were right. So does he regret it? Um, I, I would think privately he probably does. He absolutely loved being a member of Congress. He's been there for 30 years. And um, life outside of public life uh, is very different. But then again, he might be happy and relieved. He has, you know, triplet kids that are teenagers now, and he's getting up there in age, so he gets to spend time with, with his kids and his family now. Now, Rohrbacher's loss in the last election, I thought, was emblematic of a lot of other things. I mean, it was emblematic yeah. of, of the situation with Russia. It was emblematic of the the blue wave. It was also emblematic 
of what has happened here in California, especially in the House of Representatives, but really, frankly, everywhere, that um, that really could be a death knell for the Republican Party nationwide. I don't think it's gotten nearly enough attention, and I have tried to, to bring some attention to this, writing a couple articles in, in Mediate about it. But, but when, we, when you now look at the structural, structural advantage the Democrats have coming out of California and, of, of course, in New York and Illinois, but California, especially since it's the largest state population wise. When you look at that structural advantage that, that Nancy Pelosi now has out of California and how difficult, given the nature of, of politics here in California is where, the, you know, it's very difficult to become well known because there's there's no media market in a lot of these particular congressional districts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's hard to imagine. You have the top two, uh, you know, primary candidate thing. Right, going on right. You don't even, you're not, in a lot of cases, right, in a lot of cases, you don't even have a Republican running because it's the top right. two. So so all these reasons, do, do, do you see where I'm going with this? Do you agree as a, as a former congressional staffer for a Republican California, do you agree that California now uh, is, is going to cause a massive problem for Republicans, regardless of Donald Trump for a moment, uh, even in the post-Trump era, ever retaking Congress nationally? Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, Cong- uh, California has always been a litmus test for different political um, trends in the country. And this is one of them that I think Republican Party operatives and the ones who are sane, who understand how these two things work, they were watching what was going on in California and going, oh, my goodness, we really need to pay attention and make sure that we have good candidate recruitment because just the demographics of the state were changing and um, the way that the system, the way uh, California elects folks is, um, makes it difficult for Republicans to stay in office. And then Donald Trump came in and just completely threw everything out of wagon, just exacerbated the problems. And Dana's district, as an example, used to be the most Republican district in all of California. It was reliably Republican. He won by double digits most of the time. And his district ended up going, I think, plus five or six for Hillary. And so that should have been a red flag for the National Party and the NRCC looking at this, because if his district, the way Orange County went, that was a, just the red flags were all over the place. And same thing in my home state of New Jersey. It's going to be very difficult for Republicans to win in New Jersey again also. A lot of them, old-timers that had been there in Republican districts for 30 years, got swept out in a blue wave in 2018. And I'm not quite sure how Republicans get those seats back if they now give the direction of the Republican Party. Same thing in, in California. The direction of the party now is unsustainable for the Republican Party to be a major party coming in the future. They've got to they've got to course correct. But this this infection, this cancerous infection of Trumpism, is ruining the party. And California is a perfect example. Are you Tara as? Uh surprised as I am, and I, I have very low expectations for, for Trump supporters, but uh, even I w- w- have been surprised that the midterm elections, effectively, it's almost like they didn't happen. Or if they did happen, Trump didn't get even an iota of blame for any of this when he's clearly to blame. Obviously, here in California, there were a whole mess of seats that got wiped out. 
obviously because of uh, Donald Trump and in other areas of the country as well. What, what is your assessment of, of how Trump has been able to to dodge what should have been a, a, a an incredibly strong blow to his entire brand as I'm the winner, I have this magic touch, and yet he got his ass kicked in, the, in his first midterm election, and it doesn't seem to matter. What's your take on that? Well, it seems that nothing matters anymore when it comes to Donald Trump. None of the traditional um, uh, metrics where we used to judge candidates by matter. And I've said this many times, and I've gotten into arguments with friends of mine who are now Trump supporters that, you know, strained our friendships. Um, I think it's a cult. It is cultic the way that people continually rationalize things about Donald Trump that no one else would ever, ever, ever get away with. And the fact that he has manipulated the conversation through Twitter and through Fox News, Fox News is one of the biggest culprits as to why millions of people are duped by the BS that Donald Trump spews every day. He was, Donald Trump might be stupid when it comes to a lot of other things, just willfully ignorant. One thing that he's not stupid about is how to market. He is using propaganda in ways that we have not seen since probably Wilson. And what, the, starting off by calling any criticism against him fake news and constantly repeating that and undermining the, the media. Now, of course, the media is not perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. And there's some bias, yes. But not everything all the time. But the repeated fake news, fake news, anytime he was corrected or his lies were called out, has allowed people to now become completely desensitized to what actually is true, and they believe him. And one of the things is saying that, oh, it doesn't matter that I lost the House in a historic way. We still have the Senate. We won. It was a wonderful victory because we have the Senate. And unfortunately, a lot of the American people are not well-educated when it comes to civics, when it comes to how the um, three branches of government work, what the role is of the Congress or the, you know, versus the executive, they just don't know. And Donald Trump is exploiting the ignorance of a lot of people in this country by being able to put this stuff out and they just believe him. So that was I love the poorly educated. He inoculated the loss by saying it was a great victory because we maintained the Senate. That's crazy. Well, Tara, as you know, uh, Trump has said it himself. I love the poorly educated. You know, I mean, that's that's the reality <laughs> that's the of that. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. well, well, it's and scary. and I didn't realize that the Republican base was so poorly educated. I, I, you know, one of the many dispiriting elements of the Trump phenomenon has been that I have completely uh, reevaluated my view of what the convert so-called quote unquote conservative base is. And um, one of them, yeah, I want to get to that, is one, and one of the ways, there's been several ways, one, not nearly as well-educated, not nearly as philosophically based, uh, um, not nearly as principle-based, uh, don't really care about the Constitution, that whole Tea Party thing was a bunch of baloney, uh, that, that, and frankly, and this is where you, as a black female, I'm very curious as to your view on it, I, I spent years, many years, defending the Republican Party and the conservative base against charges of racism, but I can't do that anymore. I, I now believe that racism played at least a, a small, maybe a significant role in holding this quote-unquote Republican conservative coalition together. Where are you on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it saddens me to say that because I've spent 
25 years of my life in the Republican Party, fighting on the front lines of conservative issues, all the way back to 1993 and the Republican wave of 94, and through the 90s during Bill Clinton and, and minority outreach and bringing the conservative message to non-traditional constituencies was something that motivated me very early on because conservatism made sense to me. And I felt like the messengers were just poor, poor messengers. So if they could hear it from someone like me, you know, I grew up in the Jack Kemp, Reagan, Bill Buckley kind of uh, Republican Party. That's how I, I view myself. And looking at the people who I used to um, respect and the messages that they put out, I thought that it was, in fact, colorblind, that these principles did, in fact, help other people, um, you know, individual responsibility and upward mobility and, and all of those things, you know, getting at rid of all this government intervention and all those things that were just the traditional tenets of conservatism. I thought I could be a beacon to non-traditional communities about that, and that the racism stuff, the Southern strategy and all that, well, that wasn't necessarily rooted in racism. It was just rooted in numbers because, they, you know, Republicans realized they needed X amount of people. This is the way to do it. It was just cynical, pure politics, not necessarily racism. I can't say that now. What I've witnessed since Donald Trump came on the scene has disgusted me. And I can tell you that the type of death threats that I've received as being a never-Trump Republican are, were so intense that the FBI got involved. I used to have security escorts in and out of CNN studios. I could not broadcast on Twitter when I would be on air until I was already in studio. It was insane. And a lot of those insults were racially based in ways that I had never experienced. This, unle- this, this election unleashed some really ugly um, racial resentment that I think I was in denial about for many years. And that saddens me. And I just don't know where the Republican Party goes moving forward. How, how do we come back from this? Now, my conservative principles are, are the same, and those principles haven't changed. But these people who claim to be Republicans and claim to be conservative, they are hypocrites. Hypocrites. And I just don't know how we reverse course. The racial resentment is um, unbelievable. I, it's, my mom says that she's never seen anything like this since the 60s. And I'm from New Jersey. So I didn't grow up in the South, which is a very different racial dynamic. I'm from North Jersey, right outside New York City. And I didn't experience this kind of racial animus growing up as a kid in, in uh, the tri-state area. But what I see now from people who, people in the church, Look at the evangelical community and the venom that's spewed by people who call themselves Christians. That hypocrisy, to me, is one of the more disturbing ones, because without the evangelicals, Donald Trump never would have gotten elected. That's a whole other discussion. So, so Terry, you believe that uh, a large part of why the evangelicals gravitate towards Trump is his racism? No, I don't think that's a large reason. I think that for them, it was a single issue, either the, the abortion issue or religious rights, um, but they have seemed to turn a blind eye. They're accepting of the racism that Donald Trump seems to support, the things that come out of his mouth. And I've seen, just basically look at conversations on Twitter or Facebook, or things that just come out of, out of the mouths of the Franklin Grahams and, and uh, Saul Wells and all these people and some of these other grifters like Paula White. Um, they, they, they seem to not care. And even people who claim to be evangelical supporters, some of the things that they say about illegal immigration 
and what they say. And I'm a, I'm a hardliner on illegal immigration. I've worked on border security for seven years, and I worked in Capitol Hill. I come from a law enforcement family. I'm pretty tough on illegal, on illegal immigration. But I don't dehumanize people. And that seems to be okay. The way Trump has framed the argument, it's dehumanizing people. And that's very dangerous. And I see the evangelical community turning a blind eye to it or engaging in perpetuating it, just with the language being used. I'm sure there's a disgrace. I'm sure there are a lot of people who um, listen to this who, who may say, well, okay, well, what do you mean by this racism? And, and maybe we define it differently. To me, one of the there's multiple uh, pieces of evidence that go in this direction. But the strongest piece of evidence I have that a lot of this is based in racism is that Trump will do many of the very same things and have many of the same vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and flaws as Barack Obama when the conservative base went bananas over Barack Obama when he did it, and they they stay silent when Trump does it. And so I get that part of that's Democrat versus Republican and what team you're on, but I'm sorry, that seems awfully coincidental that the black guy does it and you go bananas, the white guy does it and you cheer. There's got to be some racism involved in that. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair argument to be made. What What's the common denominator here, <laughs> right? There's, there's, what, what sticks out? What, what's different than everything else about Barack Obama? Oh, you know, he was the first black president. And I am guilty of downplaying the racial animus that Barack Obama's presidency ginned up. I thought, ah, you know, that's not true. Look, look, he got reelected twice by a majority white country. Get that the hell out of here. You know, there's, there's no racism going on at, at that level. I mean, obviously, racism still exists, but not to the degree where, oh, our country's still racist and oppressive. Yeah, well, we got a black president, two terms. What are you talking about? I reevaluate all of that now, all of it, because there's really no other explanation for that level of double standard. Um, I mean, I remember when Republicans were upset over Barack Obama wearing a tan suit, for God's sake. Right. I was one of them. And I look back at that, and I said the other night on CNN, I would take Barack Obama back in a heartbeat over the disaster that we have here with Donald Trump, because none of it is worth it. At least Barack Obama, we could fight him in traditional political terms, not undermining our democratic norms, institutions, and ideals, which is what Donald Trump is doing. He's chipping away at the fundamentals of our republic in ways that concern me, because this country has been so accepting. So many people have been accepting of what he's doing. I think he could potentially be irreparably damaging our republic. That concerns me. That's the macro look for me. It's bigger than just policy squabbles. At least with Barack Obama, I mean, even Barack Obama, we complained, oh, executive overreach, and he's doing all these executive orders. DACA was horrible, and the imperial president. Are you kidding me? That's kids' play compared to what Donald Trump is doing. But yet all these people, others, who want access to power, who are getting these, these flunkies who are finally getting some attention and relevance that, that surround, uh, Trump surrounds himself with, they are destroying the fundamentals of this country. And I blame them. I blame the enablers, people who know better. Donald Trump is who he is. He's always been this malignant, narcissist, lunatic. But he's, I blame the people who know better that, are, that he's surrounding himself with, that are enablers of this. Tara, it's their fault. Tara, uh, we have only a few minutes left because I know you got to go to to celebrate uh, your mother's birthday. I think it is. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, but I, I want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, the, one of the things that has been most amazing is to see 
conservative politicians and supposedly conservative media personalities not just become friendly to Trump, but almost have a brainwashing where they become, as you've said and I've said, they look like cult members. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell me uh, how your experience there, being uh, closer to it in, in D.C. than than uh, than I am, and 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 being on CNN all the time, and and having known a lot of these people through your your association with Rohrbacher and others, can, give me your assessment of how and why that has happened, and how surprised you've been, and any examples that, that maybe you, you you have that are that are most dramatic in your mind, and you think, how in the world did this ever happen? Get, can you can you talk about that for a minute? Sure, I mean I can say just like other people have had anecdotes about um, family members that they don't speak to, or losing friends and causing friction in like coworker spaces over Donald Trump. I, I, I've experienced that personally. Um, you know, there have been so many people that I've worked with or that I've known in the media space for the 20-plus years that I've been involved in Republican politics that are unrecognizable to me today. It's like invasion of the body snatchers. I've said this for the last two and a half years as I've watched people who I know don't necessarily believe what they're saying but have decided to jump on the Trump train in order to um, keep their careers for financial benefit and just to get through it. Because they're like, well, if we speak up, we'll never work in this town again. And I'm like, you all are a bunch of cowards. Obviously, I'm not going to name names for people who I know personally who've done that, because but they know who they are. They, knew, they know who they are. Um, one example I will, I will give, though, is uh, Kellyanne Conway. Now, I haven't talked to Kellyanne in, since the election, but I have to say that, you know, Kellyanne and I have known each other for almost two decades, um, and I lived not far from her and her husband in New Jersey a couple years ago. We used to spend time together, and the stories that she told about Donald Trump and about how, you know, how dishonest he was, and, and uh, she, she told an interesting story about um, her, her daughter, and an encounter she had with Donald Trump and just how he he would make fun of his, his supporters. Um, this was early, before he declared. And then to see her turn around and become his right-hand attack dog and how just dishonest she's become, I don't recognize her. I have no idea who that person is. Now, her husband, I love George, and God bless him for leading the, the charge now. I don't know what that's like at home, <laughs> but I can, I can, I, you know, I, I love George, and I, I, I'm sure that this is not, um, this is no walk in the park for him. But for him to finally come out and be this vocal, it says a lot. But he, she's not the only one. There are so many. And just to, another example is Newt Gingrich. What the hell is Newt Gingrich doing? All of a sudden now he's become a sycophant. There was a time Newt Gingrich knows better. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. First of all, let me just say I agree with you totally about uh, George and Kellyanne Conway. And and that, and, yeah. and, and if there's one, you know, one place you'd like to be a fly on the wall, it's dinner time at the Conway Absolutely. House. I mean, that that must be uh, amazing. Uh, I'm not surprised by Newt. I, I will. I am surprised uh, by Lindsey Graham. I, I I'm, that's, I'm not surprised by Lindsey. <laughs> really? Well, tell me why you're not surprised no. by Lindsey Graham. Because Lindsey Graham has always been a wishy wash. 
and he's he's kind of gone wherever the political power and revolution. Yeah, but but the, 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 to the extent is. the extent to which he has gone, now, I'm not surprised he caved. But the extent yeah, to which I don't know. I've, I've, I've never I've never been a big fan of Lindsey Graham. Even back in the day, he always came across as a, just mm. a real political being that would kind of just do or say whatever he needed to to get by. And he had the crutch of John McCain. Um, for all those years to prop him up. Now is his first time to actually have this kind of power and to have this kind of access to it, and he's heard, and everyone listens to him. So he's going to do whatever he has to to be to survive. Mm. Everyone knows that elected officials are single seekers of re-election. That's their number one goal in life for most of them, is to make sure they get re-elected, because if they're not in power, they're not elected, then they have nothing. And Lindsey Graham is a perfect, cynical example of that, and he's even admitted it. I suggest people go back and listen to Michael Barbaro. Um, He did an interview with, um, I forget his name now, on his podcast about what happened to Lindsey Graham. And it's a very interesting listen, because Lindsey Graham basically admits that he's just doing this in order to maintain power. Like, hmm. What else am I supposed to do? He's the president of the United States. I have access. Of course, I'm going to. Do I guess. I guess to me. I guess. I guess to me. <laughs> there's a difference between uh, kissing someone's uh, buttocks and getting really deep oh, yeah. in there. I mean, that's... It's gross. It's, it's pretty gross. You know who else is a surprise? Well, not really a surprise, but another example of just are you effing kidding me? Is Ted Cruz? Oh, you yeah. have got to be kidding me, Marco Cruz. Rubio. Mark Marco family. Rubio. I mean, it, it's. True. It's pathetic. Yeah, I, I, I like Marco Rubio. From a media standpoint, I can't believe Mark Levin has gone to the extent that he has. Yes. Uh, Glenn Beck yep. has disappointed me as a friend. Uh, 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 ben Shapiro. Like I mean, it's, it's, it's all pathetic. Um, I'm yeah. sorry, what did you say I'm there? I'm not surprised about Glenn. I'm not surprised about Glenn at this point. I used to work for Glenn at the Blaze. Um, it was actually the Blaze. Uh, was the job that I left Rohrbacher's office for. Right. And... Um, I thought that Glenn was an honorable guy, that he was in, you know, full of integrity and really loved this country, and what he was doing was trying was, was an honest attempt at um, bringing conservative values through a different medium. And that's why I uprooted my whole life to move to back to home to Jersey and my husband's life and uh, to take that job. And very quickly I realized that I, my assessment of who Glenn Beck was was very wrong. And... Um, to this day, I'm not surprised. He's reinvented himself five times over in order to stay relevant and um, make up for major financial mistakes. And to see him put on a MAGA hat just was the icing on the cake of his demise, his moral demise, in my opinion. Wow. Now, t- t- so tell me, tell me what was I have to ask. What was it that made you realize that you had misinterpreted uh, Glenn Beck so early on, before even Trump? Um. The, just seeing the way that the, the direction the Blaze was going in and some decisions that were made, the content on the Blaze website in the beginning, I realized that there was a certain amount of acceptance of sensationalism just to get clicks in order to generate money. Well, that's so the bit. Unfortunately, Tara. Unfortunately, Tara, that's the business now. I mean, that's what it, you have to I do. Get it, but, but I understand that. But Glenn purported to be above that. He used to say, never become what you despise. And he used to have, you know, take these very self-righteous, sanctimonious, moral um, positions on things that, you know, we're different. We're not like those other companies. We're different. And that was the only reason why I made the decision I made, because I'm not, I'm not naive. I'm not Pollyanna when it comes to this, the media business. But um, what he purported to be important, which were principles and integrity, uh, apparently, we're not as important when it came to the bottom dollar, and I just 
I was very disappointed in what I saw in, very, in what happened with the Blaze. Very interesting. All right, last question. We'll, we'll end with sure. basically the same subject we began with, although a, a different element of it, and that is the, the Russian investigation, the Mueller report, and the issue of impeachment. Give us your, your quick take on uh, what your expectations for the Mueller report were, especially after what Bill Barr did in comparison to what you felt about it once you actually read it, and what do you think ought to happen from here? Well, I have to say that the, the Mueller report, unless you are um, really, really into all of this, like most of us, was probably something that was underwhelming. And uh, a lot of, well, I don't get it. So does that mean that so Trump was exonerated and now what? That's what it was for a lot of the American people who don't follow this day to day, don't live, breathe, and eat this stuff the way we do, and who will never read the 448 pages of it. Um, for me, it was pretty uh, damning, volume one being damning, and maybe there was no collusion, quote-unquote, because it's not actually a legal term that Mueller could ever have based anything on. Um, but there was a whole lot of colluding stuff going on that was unacceptable that no other president or their campaign would ever get get away with. I mean, imagine if Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign manager was exchanging polling information and data with a Russian intelligence officer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Republicans would be lining up screaming impeachment for her. And so there were so many examples of ways that the Russian government attacked our uh, our elections and ways that the Trump the Trump folks willing participants in accepting stolen information and going along with what the Russians were doing if it helped them win. From the Trump Tower meeting to the example I gave of Paul Manafort with the polling data. There, and, and the fact that, that the Russians actually did attack um, election, uh, election offices. We don't know how far it went with election equipment. All of those things are in Volume 1. So that should scare the hell out of the American people what, the, what a, a, an enemy is doing to undermine our democracy. Then volume two is clearly, clearly obstruction of justice. There is example after example after example. And again, if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or even Bill Clinton had done a fraction of what Donald Trump did in volume two, they would, the impeachment, they would have been impeached by now. There would have been no question about it. But the fact that Mueller didn't come out because he's so straight and narrow he doesn't like politics. He didn't want to seem too political. He's no Ken Starr. Um, he didn't come right out and say it, but he led. He really did leave a roadmap for impeachment. He said, "Look, we can't. We can't indict a president. We were never going to do that." Starting off because of that OLC memo, indicting the president of the United States was never going to happen. However, the Constitution allows for other remedies, and those remedies go through Congress. Here's the, here's all the information. And, and I think impeachment inquiry should start. We can't just say impeach him now because the American people need to be educated why this matters, why this is such a violation. And if you don't do anything, like Justin Amash said, God, you know, God loves Justin Amash. I don't agree with a lot of his libertarian stuff, but at least he had the fortitude to finally say, I read the report, and oh, my God, this guy's got to go. He's got to go. And this, you know what I'm afraid of? Justin Amash said, I'm afraid of impeachment being used not too often, but too rarely, where it no longer holds the weight it's supposed to. If there's no consequence for your action, what the hell's the point? And that's my concern. If what Donald Trump has done 
that's just in the Mueller report, is it impeachable? Then what the hell is? So we need to start with an impeachment inquiry. People need to realize that even with Nixon, the, the public support for impeaching Nixon wasn't there until they started the hearings, even with Republicans, until very, very late. Right. And once the public hears what's going on, and, they, and Mueller must testify. I understand he doesn't want to, but I think it's his duty to do it. And he'll honor a subpoena if it's given. But I think it's impactful for people to hear straight from the horse's mouth what he wrote, why he wrote it, not only Mueller, but Don McGahn and other people who were involved, they need to hear it. It's different hearing it from somebody live and in person than just reading a report. So impeachment inquiry, I know that it's politically tenuous to do it, but they've got to. I think the republic is at stake if we don't. And just like Bill Buckley famously said that conservatives are supposed to be the ones that stand athwart history yelling stop, Somebody needs to do that. And if now is not the time to yell stop and do something to change course here, I just worry about where the country goes if we have a second term of Donald Trump. Tara, incredibly well said. I agree with almost every single thing you just said there. In fact, almost every syllable, except for the part about Americans being educated by hearings and that this is what happened with Nixon. In fact, I wrote about this this week and, and saying that, look, the media environment is totally different today than it was in 1974. And it, and it doesn't matter what happens at hearings other than maybe Mueller testifying because they'll be jettisoned to the cable news networks as, as opposed to in 1974 when they were on only uh, we only had four or five TV channels. Uh, the hearings were actually carried live on the, all the major networks in 1974 mm-hmm. before there was even an actual impeachment. Uh, so none of that's going to happen to this degree today. We've got 500 TV channels and streaming options and people are distracted in the Internet. And we also have a cult like state-run media with Fox News Channel, the Drudge Report, conservative talk radio that will uh, insulate the president from anything that comes out of those hearings that might be damaging. So I don't see how you change the political equation. I agree in everything else you just said, but I think it's unrealistic to think that we can duplicate Nixon. And so therefore it's a quandary as to how you go ahead and preserve impeachment historically and, and get some sort of accountability without playing right into the Trump's hands. And I'm really conflicted by that. I don't know if you have a thought on that, but I know you're out of time. So if you have a thought. Yeah, feel- I mean, I can respond to that. I, I think your, your assessment is fair. It is definitely a different environment for sure. Um, but I think that you still need to have, you need to have it on record. You need to have the ability to point to what Mueller or McGahn or some of those say to help some of those people who might be in the middle. You're never going to change the mind of the 30, 35% of the Trump cultists. You're just not. They are beyond reach. But it's that 5 to 10% who are like, well, the economy or, well, the Supreme Court justices, those people are the ones that need to feel like, oh, my gosh, this cannot be what is now the standard for the presidency. We're not going to stand for it anymore. And I think that there's still an opportunity to be able to kind of shape that a little bit and have what, what Mueller and McGahn and others say on the record. Those are very powerful images, even with all of the noise on the outside that can distract and the propaganda machine coming out of Fox News so irresponsibly. This attack on law enforcement, this attack on the intelligence community, this attack on truth and facts, that has got to, we can't just roll over and say, well, you know, we've got a different environment. There's lots of other options. So 
we can't do anything, we still have to fight. We still have to fight. We cannot normalize any of this. We can't be bullied into silence. People have to stand up and say, what is right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And I think it starts with bringing people like Mueller and others to testify. Or else, what's the point of having Congress? Dara, incredibly well said. Awesome interview. You're um, doing an amazing job at CNN. Please keep it up. I, I like the fact that you're really the, the only, uh, uh, the uh, one of the few, I should say, uh, never-Trump conservatives who stand by their conservative principles. Please don't turn into Anna Navarro uh, or somebody like that um, uh, who, who becomes an out liberal while claiming to be a Republican. But you don't do that, uh, and I really respect you for that, and you did a great job today, and, and I look forward to talking to you again uh, before the next 12 years are up. Absolutely, and thank you very much. It's very kind of you, and I, uh, listen, I'm a tough Jersey girl, and I don't know how to be any other way than to be honest, which is why I have a podcast called Honestly Speaking with Tara, because people turn to me knowing that what they're going to get from me is honest, and it comes from a place of sincerity and experience. Like I said, I spent 20 years in the conservative movement, 25 now, good Lord, and since I was 18 years old, and those principles are still very important to me. I still think that those conservative principles are what's best for this country, but the messengers are fallible now, and we need, to, we need more people to stand up to show America what actual conservative principles are and not let this, this cancer infect everything that we've stood for for decades uh, of conservatism. So I, I wear it with a badge of valor. I don't mind standing up for what's right. Somebody's got to do it. And I know there's a lot more people out there who feel the way you and I do. I just need to know that they're not alone. So you're not alone. Sometimes we sometimes <laughs> sometimes it feels like we're alone, but uh, Tara Setmeyer. Yeah, it does, but look, nothing nothing worth it is you know nothing is, is worth it unless you got to fight for it a little bit, and uh, we're in the, I think we're in the fight of our of our lives in this country since the Civil War. All right, uh, Tara, check her out on CNN and on our podcast. Thanks so much for your time and keep in touch. Thanks, John. Wow, Tara was uh, really awesome, even better than I expected, and it's great to catch up with her, and we'll have to have her back on again whenever uh, she's available. Uh, I, I agree with almost everything she said there, uh, but uh, there were a couple differences. But it's amazing to me uh, um, how few people are able to see, or at least willing to see and say what she's willing to say within the conservative media ranks. Because it's so damn obvious. And it became even more obvious, as if it wasn't already, over the last few days, with some of the things that have occurred. In our last episode, which we did on Thursday, Los Angeles time, I had not yet seen the interview that Donald Trump did with Laura Ingram on Fox News Channel from Normandy during the commemoration, almost literally during the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. And so I didn't comment on it then, but in a, in a normal world, in a rational world, uh, this would be all we would be talking about. I say this all the time, but it bears repeating that if Barack Obama at a Normandy invasion uh, commemoration uh, in front of literally in front of the grave sites of Americans fall, uh, who, who died in war in the Normandy invasion, using that as a backdrop, as a prop on your state-run propaganda uh, TV outlet had attacked Robert Mueller, a a Marine war hero, and uh, attacked the Speaker of the House of Representatives for having made a comment in a private meeting. Now, I'm no fan of Nancy Pelosi, all right? Let's be clear. But 
uh, you know, these all there's all sorts of these old rules that Trump likes to take advantage of when they they benefit him, but when they don't, they don't exist. Uh, one of them is that somehow when the president is overseas, you know, politics stops at the water's edge, all that kind of stuff. And Nancy Pelosi even uh, was interviewed during the commemoration or uh, around it and said that she would not criticize Donald Trump uh, during that time period where he's overseas. But while she was back in the United States, there was a meeting uh, in the Congressional Caucus where she basically said, apparently, that she's not in favor of Trump's impeachment. She doesn't want him impeached. She wants him put in prison. So Trump being Trump, with the backdrop uh, of the graves of American soldiers, uh, says this, has this exchange with Laura Ingram on state-run Fox News Channel. He made such a fool out of himself the last time she... Because what people don't report is the letter he had to do to straighten out his testimony, because his testimony was wrong. But Nancy Pelosi, I call her nervous Nancy, Nancy Pelosi doesn't talk about it. Nancy Pelosi's a disaster, okay? She's a disaster. And let her do what she wants. You know what? I think they're in big trouble. All right. Now, that wasn't the full clip that I thought it was. So, I mean, it wasn't clear that we were talking about Robert Mueller there at the beginning. So let's play it again. So here here he is talking about Robert Mueller, war hero, and then he transitions into Nancy Pelosi. And frankly, I'm not even sure I understand what he means about the the letter clearing up his testimony because Mueller hasn't testified. So I, I don't even understand what this means. But this is what Trump said again. He made such a fool out of himself the last time she because what people don't report is the letter he had to do to straighten out his testimony because his testimony was wrong. But Nancy Pelosi, I call her nervous Nancy. Nancy Pelosi doesn't talk about it. Nancy Pelosi's a disaster. Okay, she's a disaster. And let her do what she wants. You know what? I think they're in big trouble. So Nancy Pelosi is a disaster and Robert Mueller, Marine war hero, is a fool. Meanwhile, this is the guy who didn't even serve in Vietnam because he had fake bone spurs, which he effectively acknowledged were fake when asked by Piers Morgan about why he didn't serve in Vietnam. And he didn't give the bone spurs answer. He didn't say, well, I couldn't. I had bone spurs. He said, you know, it's too far away. I didn't really agree with the war. It wasn't, I didn't even know what Vietnam was. But at least I didn't protest against it. And you know what? I have given all these billions of dollars to the military to make up for it. When, no, you didn't. Uh, First of all, Congress did that. Second of all, the American taxpayers uh, did that. So, I mean... That was as outrageous as it gets from a quote-unquote presidential standpoint, and it, of course, will be forgotten by Monday morning, uh, but it would not have been in the conservative media if it had been done by Barack Obama or any other Democrat. Speaking of this bizarre loss of memory uh, and and delusional cluelessness, I mean, talk about lack of self-awareness. There were two other uh, amazing examples of this. One came from Sean Hannity, who again, playing off of this Nancy Pelosi statement in a private meeting. It's important to point that out. This is a private meeting. She did not go on national television to say the president should go to jail. All right. She said this to her congressional, the leadership of her congressional caucus. So Hannity... (laughs) who, of course, supports Trump and everything and has been at the forefront of the lock Hillary up brigade. As a matter of fact, I mean, still bizarrely, years after the election, still talking about Hillary's 
emails and that whole bogus story uh, as if she's still the president of the United States. This is Sean Hannity getting a, setting a new level for lack of self-awareness after, uh, uh, you know, being a, 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 all in favor of lock Hillary up and, and cheering Trump on as, as he uses this even to this day at rallies, the, the lock her up chant that was even used at the Republican convention, for heaven's sakes. Here is Sean Hannity. <laughs> Talking about the audacity of Nancy Pelosi to suggest that the president of the United States should be locked up. Even impeaching Trump apparently is not enough. That Speaker Pelosi now apparently telling senior Democrats she'd like to see Trump behind bars. Uh, based on no actual crime, she wants a political opponent locked up in prison. Um, that happens in banana republics. Beyond despicable behavior. And by the way, they would literally turn in many ways, the USA into a country we no longer recognize. Actually, Donald Trump's doing a hell of a job of just that. And the amnesia here, the convenient amnesia is off the charts. Uh, I honestly don't even know what's going on. It it, it feels to me like Hannity isn't even making that connection. Now, it's hard to know with Hannity because he's not that bright. He's not a smart guy. He's well known in the industry as being dumb. So it's possible he's not making the connection, but I actually think there's something deeper going on. I think that there is this collective uh, self-interested amnesia that we're going to see going forward where they're just going to pretend that everything that they have accepted, everything that they have enabled, everything that they have defended didn't really happen because somehow the ends justified the means. Mark Levin did this on Twitter just the other day. This is similar. Mark Levin went on Twitter and said, you know what? I believe, it's, I think he said something like, I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm just trying to tell it like it is. But Joe Biden is simply unfit to be president of the United States. You know what? In a, in a, in a rational world, that might be true. I'm, I'm no Joe Biden fan. I want to make that clear, even though I have said that I might vote for him, because we're in desperate times. Desperate times mean, you know, desperate measures. But uh, all I've said about Joe Biden is if you want to beat Trump, he's the person that has the best chance of doing so. So, yeah, I would love to live in a country where Joe Biden was not considered to be fit for office. He's not very bright. He's too old. I get all that. But when you compare him to who currently resides in the office, Donald Trump, a person who Mark Levin himself said numerous times before he jumped on the bandwagon and became part of the cult, was was a, a, a liberal fraud, a con man, a, a guy who anybody would interpret as not being fit for the office, and then you turn around and go, well, I don't think Joe Biden is fit. I'm sorry, you can't do that. No, no, you, you changed all the rules. By enabling Trump, you have now accepted what the standards are, what the rules are. You can't go back on that now, although they're going to try. It's clear they're going to try. It's going to be hilarious to watch, and I'm going to do my best, whatever little part I can, to hold them accountable for this bullcrap. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to change the rules so that your guy gets a pass and then you, and then go back to the old rules. I'm sorry. No, we're not going to allow that. But that's what people like Sean Hannity and Mark Levin are going to try to do to get out of what they have done over the last several years in this massive, horrendous sellout of all their alleged principles, all on behalf of this con man named Donald Trump.
Uh, speaking of the Don, the con man Donald Trump, I mentioned in our last episode his side trip while he was overseas to Ireland to visit his golf club, Dunebag, which I've played on a couple of occasions as a guest of uh, Congressman John Yarmouth, uh, who happens to be a member there, although I'm not 100% sure he's still a member there. I know he, he was uh, at least a few years ago, but the property value went down so much that I don't think he was able to sell it, at least last time we spoke about it. He was not able to sell it. But this side trip to Dunebag to promote his golf course while President of the United States on a foreign trip cost American taxpayers $3.6 million. $3.6 million. Correct. That now means... That according to published reports, the total amount of tax dollars spent on Trump-related golf trips is one point, I'm sorry, a hundred, a hundred and six million dollars, one hundred and five point eight million dollars to be exact. A hundred and six million dollars on Trump golf-related trips. Correct. And of course, what that would be bad enough. If this was just normal tax money that's you know has to come out of somewhere, it's our taxes being used to to fund him playing golf and to promote his own businesses. By the way, he shot a commercial effectively while he was in Dunebag that was paid for effectively by us. So for his, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's you. It's just you cannot be serious. You cannot be serious that you're getting away with this. But it's worse than even that. It would be bad enough it was just, especially a guy who claimed that Barack Obama played too much golf. And look, I'm I'm well known as a avid tournament golfer, so although not nearly as good as I would should be or used to be. But the point is, I'm a golf fanatic. Love golf. It's great that he plays golf. But you know, he criticized Barack Obama constantly for playing golf. Over a hundred million dollars spent in our tax money. But here's the real kicker. A lot of that money, and I don't know what the exact amount is, but a lot of that money effectively is going to Trump because they're going, they're being, it's being paid to Trump owned properties. So he's double dipping here. He's getting the American taxpayer to pay for his golf trips, and the American taxpayer is funding his entities including, as I've already mentioned, an actual commercial for Dunebag, which badly needs it because no one's going there to golf, whether it's because of uh, the nature of golf or the economy or the course itself, which has some issues, or, or the Trump brand. I don't know. But the, the whole the reality is this: these are the types of things that would be outrageous and unacceptable if Barack Obama did them. And with Trump, the Trump, the Trump cult never says a damn thing about it. And uh, as we talked about with Tara, I think there's at least some racism involved in that massive hypocrisy. Then there's the, uh, the fake Mexico tariff deal, which went down over the last couple of days. And this was classic Trump. So here's what Trump does. Trump takes a situation where there's not a crisis. He creates a crisis by saying he's going to put a 5% tariff on Mexican goods. This causes the stock market to go down, people to freak out, Republicans in the Senate to say, we might stand up to Trump on this one. Yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. And we're going to stop this because this is a really dumb idea. And then once we get close to the deadline, Trump uh, negotiates himself out of his own crisis while then claiming victory when there's no actual victory. 
I mean, we've seen this before, and we're going to probably see it again. Correct. Uh, but this is a, this is a joke, and yet it works with his cult because the cult believes him. They don't believe the media. So when the media reports that uh, when Trump says that that somehow he's gotten these great concessions from Mexico when it comes to helping with illegal immigration, that's bullcrap. They had already agreed to do this this stuff, which by the way is not binding to begin with. Weeks before the terror threat. So he didn't gain anything from this. But when the media reports on that, they don't believe it. Or when Trump, in all caps, and therefore, by the way, you must it must be a lie. You know, when, when Trump tweets in all caps, it must be a lie, because otherwise he wouldn't use the all caps. But when Trump tweets in all caps that he's thrilled about this great new farm deal that Mexico has reached as part of uh, avoiding the tariffs. And Mexico, three different Mexican officials say, uh, we have no idea what the hell you're talking about. This was not part of any sort of deal. There's nothing new here. The cult doesn't believe it because their Wizard of Oz told them it was true. It's in all caps. It's on his Twitter feed. It must be true. I love the poorly educated. It's all bullshit. It's all total bullshit. And, you know, as one of our our favorite guests, Joe Walsh, tweeted uh, today to some effect that, uh, you know, it's it's it must be easy to claim you're winning all the time when you can make any deal you want, say it's a victory, and your cult believes it. That's what's happening here. There's no actual winning. The only thing that happened was that the stock market for several weeks went on a roller coaster ride because they thought he might actually be serious. And by the way, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. China is looking at this because we're dealing with the same thing with China right now. They see how Trump rolled over, got nothing, got a BS one-page, 500-word nothing burger of a deal. There's no major concessions. None of this means squat. It's all about covering up for Donald Trump getting uh, exposed once again as a lousy negotiator and being reckless and and not getting anything out of these crazy ideas that he puts forward, even though the conservative media pretended like he solved the entire illegal immigration crisis because of his tariffs. Even people like Ben Shapiro used to be fairly credible, uh, bought into this bullshit line. This is it's complete absurdity. It's not true. That's not what happened. And the the most hilarious part of this whole thing is in tweeting that he has now fixed the illegal immigration problem (laughs) through the use of this tariff negotiation, he's probably harmed his legal case when it comes to declaring a national emergency on the border because, dude, you just said you solved it. So where's the national emergency? But he needs to do this because he he cannot accept having been exposed as a loser, as not being the alpha male, as not being the great negotiator. It's all a con. It's all fake. It's not real. And China's looking at this and they go, well, obviously he's a paper tiger. We don't need to worry about this. We're not, why would we give up anything in the negotiation? This is his MO. He's, it's all a fake. It's all a fraud. He doesn't really mean it. He's just trying to to cut a deal so he can claim some sort of victory because he said he was going to rip up all the trade deals with China, with China during the election. And all that was a bunch of baloney, too. It's all fake. It's all based. It's all predicated on fooling the cult and realizing that no one's going to remember this, that our memories are short.
And that when, you know, so let's like with North Korea, you, you declare victory. And then when they resume testing a few months later, uh, you just deny it's happening and people will forget about it. That's Trump understands that better than anybody. He understands people's attention spans. He understands how forgetful they are. He understands we move on to other things. You just declare victory and move on. And you create your own reality like it's 1984. And that's what's going on. And it's as Orwellian as hell. Uh, a couple other things before we, we run out of time in this hour of the of the podcast. I had mentioned previously there was this transcript of John Dowd. Trump's lawyer at the time, leaving a voicemail message from Mike Flynn's lawyer. Well, the actual recording came out over the last couple of days. And I'm not going to play for you because it's it's too long and the, some of the audio is not great. And frankly, Dowd sounds drunk. So I don't know how much uh, weight to give it. But the actual recording is way more damning than even the transcript itself. It is so obvious that they are, uh, number one, floating a pardon for Michael Flynn to keep him on the team. That's number one. And number two, what I think is the part of that that's not getting enough attention is there seems to be this idea on Dow's part that when he talks about a national security issue, if there's implicating evidence against the president, he seems, the way I interpret it, he seems to be saying you know what? Um, you know, again, this is my interpretation. It sounds consistent with Dowd believing Trump might have committed treason against the United States. And he's basically asking Flynn if he has evidence to that effect. And this is the president's own lawyer. And of course, the, the, the Trump cult reaction to this is hilarious. They, they completely ignore all that and the pardon and the, the voicemail message. And they focus on the fact that in the Mueller report, some of the words in the recording are not in the transcript. Not like they're trying to hide it, because apparently the Trump cult doesn't understand what, you know, dot, 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 dot means. When you put dot, 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 dot in a transcript, it means that you're omitting some words for space. There's not trying to hide anything. But I guess the, the Trump cult doesn't understand that. Uh, so they're, you know, that's, that's their takeaway. Aha! The Mueller report was, was trying to censor information. No, no, there was superfluous words being used in the, in the recording that they didn't put in the transcript. I don't know why they made that decision. It didn't save them that much space, but there's nothing substantive that changes. And in fact, when you actually hear the voicemail message, it's clear that this is a mob lawyer working for a mob boss who's trying to shut down Mike Flynn's uh, testimony because they think he might have damaging information against the president of the United States. And similar to that, you know, Trump tweeted this week promoting, and he's doing this constantly, promoted Mark Levin's book. Uh, I guess that's Mark Levin's payoff for selling out to the con man. He did that last night. He tweeted a promotion of a John Solomon, who I've never even heard of before, opinion piece on the Hill where uh, he takes a shot at Mueller for for not divulging what effectively is classified in, in te- intelligence about an intelligence source that may have been effectively a, a Russian double agent. And somehow this changes uh, what's in the Mueller report or somehow implicates Mueller. I didn't even understand what the point of the piece was. It turns out none of this is really new information. 
Uh, but except for the fact that it appears it's possible that they're now the uh, the uh, DOJ through Bill Barr may be leaking classified intel to the Colt 45 media. And that John Sullivan's of the world is an opinion writer. This wasn't even a news piece. It was an opinion piece. The, even the Hill wouldn't slap a news uh, subject on it. It was an opinion piece. This is the best the president can do. He's tweeting a promotion of a John Solomon opinion piece in the Hill. To me, that's an indication that they're still desperate and that the truth's not on their side and that this is all they've got. Wow, they don't have much. If this is all they got on Mueller, they really don't have much, and they still clearly are concerned about Mueller, although I'm not sure they should be because Mueller doesn't want to testify. Maybe he will eventually, but I think time is, if it hasn't run out, it's running out darn quickly on this. Uh, Democrats are starting hearings this week. I think they're going to be a big nothing burger. They have a chance to actually be pathetic. I wrote about this for media, as I referenced in my interview with Tara that uh, this is not going to be a duplication of the hearings going into the Nixon situation because the media environment has completely changed. And so I am becoming more and more despondent, frustrated, and frankly a little pissed off with the Democratic leadership and how they're handling this whole situation because at this point I don't see how you get impeachment done. I don't see the the path. I don't see the timeline. I don't see how it becomes a a non-disaster. Uh, now, that could change if Mueller testifies and hits a grand slam. But other than that, I don't see that path. Uh, we uh, have not yet spoken to Congressman John Yarmuth, uh, with whom we've had numerous conversations in the past about impeachment. He's now in favor of impeachment. He's my good buddy from Louisville. Uh, he was not available today, but hopefully we're going to schedule him sometime soon to be able to get the bottom of what's going on, at least from his perspective. As far as the presidential race in 2020, the thing I, I see most happening in the media right now is a lot of love for Elizabeth Warren and uh, taking shots at Joe Biden. Uh, I've been predicting this for at least the second part for quite a while, that the media does not want Joe Biden to run away with the Democratic nomination. That's bad for them. Uh, they want drama. And there, a lot of them are super liberals. They don't like Biden. They want to fall in love with somebody. They want a nice narrative. The Biden narrative is boring to them. A Biden presidency would be pretty boring to them. So they're going to want somebody to challenge uh, Biden. Now, whether or not they think Elizabeth Warren is that person, I don't know. By the way, I should point out uh, Biden caved on the issue of abortion and specifically the Hyde Amendment in a way that certainly looks like a, a pandering flip-flop. I don't know how effective that is. I guess his people must have thought he had to do that to survive a, uh, a Democratic primary in, in this environment. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's a good move. It continues to make me think that Biden may not be up to this. His fastball may not be there. Mark Levin might be right about that. But if he's right about Joe Biden being unfit, uh, (laughs) Donald Trump is even more unfit uh, than what we currently know about Joe Biden. But as far as Elizabeth Warren is concerned, if Democrats do not understand that the failed debacle of the DNA test completely discredits her against Donald Trump in a general election, then they, they're going to get what they deserve. Correct. Because Donald Trump would slice and dice her. Because she has already been defined by enough of the public by the Pocahontas failed DNA test that uh, he, she would play right into his hands. 
uh, and maybe more so than almost any other Democratic major candidate. You take a super liberal from Massachusetts with the whole Pocahontas debacle, and Trump's going to have a field day with that. So if you decide that's what you want to do, Democrats, more power to you. Good luck. You're going to get your head handed to you. You're going to get scalped, if you will. Ha ha. He he. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I see that a lot, and I even mention on Twitter from time to time because these media personalities are openly campaigning now for Elizabeth Warren for some reason, and they seem to forget that the DNA test even happened. The DNA test cannot be erased unless you get rid of Google. It's something the average person understands, and it's disqualifying, especially against the Donald Trump. Political correctness is his energy source. And so you're going to give him Pocahontas? Seriously? I mean, come on. You cannot be serious. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Individual One podcast. Uh, as we always do, we end with the percentages of Trump not finishing his first term in office and being reelected. We're going to keep them at the same numbers as the last episode, which is 5% chance he does not finish his first term in office, a 40% chance uh, that he is reelected. Although if that uh, dom- the nominee is Elizabeth Warren, I would put that number much higher. I don't know what it would be, but it would be much higher than 40%. Right now, though, I, I do not believe, although it's certainly possible, that Warren will be that nominee. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this program via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until Wednesday, Los Angeles morning uh, time, this is the Global Story Network.